Luke chapter 6. Uh, joy to be with you once again. I was thinking this morning, I never want to take these times for granted. It's a great privilege that the Lord gives us to gather together as a church family and to attend to the word, to spend the morning worshiping and praising him and then hearing from him in his word, the Bible. And we're going to be uh, looking at Luke chapter 6, I'm going to be reading now, verses 27 through 36, so if you'll follow along with me. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. If there is a more challenging passage in the Bible, I don't know what it is. This makes me squirm. Jesus is here presenting the ethics of the kingdom of God. Ethics has to do with how we live, how we ought to live. Jesus is here teaching his disciples how they ought to live. Now, the ethic of the kingdom of God is love. And love is not primarily what we feel, but what we do, what we do toward others. And the challenging thing about this passage is to whom that love is to be directed. It's to be directed toward en enemies, the, those who oppose us, enemies who hate us, who curse abuse us, strike us on the cheek, take from us. How are we to understand this? I mean, we who take the Bible literally, how are we to understand this? Are we to take this literally? I mean, if it was anybody other than Jesus telling us this, we would dismiss it immediately because anyone else would undoubtedly be a hypocrite, someone who tells us to do what he himself does not do. But we can't get away with that with Jesus. 
because he actually practiced what he preached. And we're amazed by him, but that's Jesus. Does he really expect us to do the same? Now, the passage begins with the words, Jesus says, but I say to you who hear. Who is he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to anyone with an earshot, but his immediate audience is his disciples, his disciples. And that takes us back to last week's sermon on disciples. Do you remember last week's sermon? No, you don't. I mean, I don't even remember it, and I preached it. I had to go back and look at it. It was the, the only thing I can remember about it was that it was unforgettable. <laughs> but when I look back, I saw, ah, it's a sermon about disciples. Remember we talked about Jesus choosing and naming the 12? And so if we think about last week, it provides us with context, which is so important when we're trying to understand a passage of Scripture. We need to understand the concept and last week in verse 17, chapter 6, it says he came down with them, with the 12, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. So there are those two groups that are distinguished. There was a great crowd of disciples, not just the 12, but there were many other disciples as well, people who followed him. And then in addition to that, there was a great multitude of persons who came from all over geographically. And then, verses 20 through 23, I'll read them again. They're short. They're important. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he calls them blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Not will be, but is. You see, disciples are those who have decided to follow Jesus they are already in the kingdom of God. They have decided to follow Jesus. They're already in the kingdom without having lifted a finger. They belong to Jesus and they are citizens of the kingdom of God. And the blessings that he speaks of there are theirs already. Now the blessings have to do with the kingdom of God. And granted, the blessings are a little strange. He says, blessed are you who are poor and hungry and crying and hated and spurned and excluded and reviled. And you think, those are blessings? Yeah, they're blessings because in the end, disciples will be satisfied, laughing, happy, included. Why? Because they're disciples. They've chosen to follow Jesus. They line up with him. They will be with him. Yeah, they do suffer, but they suffer on account of the Son of Man. They're with Jesus, right? They line up with him, and though it costs them, they line up with Jesus and with the prophets of old 
who were righteous and godly and persecuted. Like the prophets, disciples may suffer, but they're in good company. Disciples are blessed. And remember after that, Jesus said some woes. Woes are bad. He said, woe to the corrupt rich, the ones with full bellies, the ones who are well spoken of because they seek man's empty praise. Oh yeah, they're laughing now, but they will be poor and hungry and miserable because there will be a great reversal, a great reversal of fortunes and the ones who use others for their own gain, the ones who become rich by grinding the faces of the poor, they will one day regret their choices. Yeah, they may be popular now, but it will not end well for them. Okay, so here we are in the 21st century, and how do we read this? And this is still review, okay? Well, question, are you a disciple? Well, whether you're a disciple or not, and whether you're a disciple and have been one for a long time or a short time, we all have a lot to learn. And so those great crowd of disciples were listening to Jesus, and he was telling them, this is what it means to be a disciple. And it was kind of a prophetic pronouncement, an introduction to his great sermon Right now, they're disciples, and they're not exactly sure what it means, but they are attracted to Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. They're lining up with Jesus, and so he tells them this is what it means. When they hear his words, and when I hear his words today, and when you hear the words, and you hear those blessings, and you hear those woes, we, we start to evaluate. Am I good with that? Am I good with following Jesus even if it means suffering, being hungry, being excluded? Yeah, I am. Because the blessings are good even though they may start out looking bad. I know that in the long run, sorrow will turn to joy and all will be well. And when I hear those woes, ooh, I'm warned. I, I, don't, I want to avoid anything that looks like that. You know, it's kind of like wedding vows. We fall in love, and we want to get married, and we have all these ooey-gooey feelings. You say, babe, I want to live with you forever. Forever? Yeah, forever. And then... We take wedding vows. What are wedding vows? We better read them in advance because it means you're in it for the long haul, for richer, okay, or poorer. Mm, all right. In sickness and in health. Okay, yeah, I guess so. For better, mm -hmm. for worse. Worse? Yeah, worse. Are you still in? You still want to get married? Yeah. Marriage is a blessing. But you know, I've been married for a long time and there have been times when it hasn't always felt like a blessing. And I'm sure Clara would say the same thing <laughs> considering who she's married to. But following Jesus is a blessing. 
even though there are times when it might not seem like it. So remember, last week we said the context of all of this assumed persecution. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That mysterious figure, which is a reference, of course, to Jesus himself. Persecution is assumed because you line up with Jesus. He told his disciples, if they hated me, they will hate you also. But he says to them, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus says, rejoice, leap for joy, because there's a great reward that is coming. Now, it's all because of persecution. It's that those blessings look that way because there's opposition to Jesus. And this is how the prophets were treated. So he's saying, you line up with me, you line up with the prophets, you're going to be persecuted. Why the persecution? Why the poverty, the hunger, the weeping, the rejection? It's on account of the Son of Man. Now that was the prophetic introduction to Jesus' greatest sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Here in Luke, we call it the Sermon on the Plain. Luke has a edited smaller version Matthew you get a fuller presentation but that was the introduction now today what we read in the beginning now come the actual exhortations the actual directives the commands the actual ethics of the kingdom of God he tells us now how the disciples are to live and just another word here to those who occupy that great multitude of people who were listening in. There may be some of you that are here today. I'm speaking mainly to disciples of Jesus Christ, but I'm sure that there are those here who are part of that multitude that are listening in as they were that day to Jesus, who have not yet decided to follow Jesus, who are right now checking it out, and that's fine, we're glad you're here. We all, at one point, were sitting in your seat checking it out, but we were sitting on the fence, and you can't sit on the fence forever. There comes a time when you have to get off the fence. Will you, won't you? Do you, don't you? You have to decide what will you do with Jesus Christ because people who sit on the fence do not get into heaven. So listen carefully, this is the ethics of the kingdom. This is for the disciple, and beginning with this, this is what is true, disciple of Jesus Christ, you are already in the kingdom. You're already in because of your faith in Jesus. You can't do these things in order to get in, but because you are in, you must do them to be obedient to your Lord. Or we could say, you don't have to, you get to. Yeah, but can you really say the disciples are already believers in Jesus in the kingdom of God? Yeah, we can say that with anticipatory faith. 
They had faith in him. He hadn't gone to the cross yet and died for their sins or risen from the dead. But like the Old Testament saints, like Abraham, they believed in him. They were following him. And so they are his people. So this is true. Disciple, you're already in the kingdom. And the other thing that is true, persecution on account of Jesus is a given. Now, having said all that, we're ready to look at this more closely. This is how we're to live. And we can summarize the passage and Jesus' ethic of the kingdom with a simple phrase, love your enemies. The kingdom ethic is love, but love your enemies is within the scope of this passage. That phrase actually frames the passage. We saw it at the beginning and at the end of the passage, love your enemies, because if you love your enemies, you're certainly going to love your friends too. Some people hear it and they think, wow, that's radical, but that's cool. Jesus is really cool. He gets us, right? And in theory, it sounds great. But then Jesus gets more specific. I mean, if you just go off thinking, yeah, love your enemy, that's cool. No, let me fill it out for you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And to the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So the enemy here is the one who hates and curses and abuses and insults and takes. And the disciple is the one who is hated, cursed, abused, insulted, taken from. For the most part, enemy opposition takes the form of abusive words. And by the way, the slap on the cheek is most likely not an assault, but an insult. Not personal injury, but personal insult is most likely in view. Nevertheless, the disciple here is the victim. And Jesus tells the victim disciple how he is to respond to such treatment. He is to love, do good, bless, pray, not resist evil, give, not demand repayment. So love in this case has to do with what we do, it's not how we feel. Jesus is addressing our wills. If he was addressing our feelings, we'd say it's impossible for me to feel like doing any of this for someone who treats me like that. But Jesus is not addressing our emotions, he's addressing our wills. And then he summarizes it all by saying, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And that's of course what we call the golden rule. And nobody has a problem with the golden rule. We're happy with the golden rule because it makes sense to us. I'm happy to treat others with kindness and mercy as long as those that I'm dealing with also treat me with kindness and mercy. But if they're nasty to me, the golden rule? So Jesus goes on to clarify further. And he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners 
love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. There it is again. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. If you only love and do good to people who are loving and good to you in return, what does that benefit you? And Jesus wants us to benefit. He says, what benefit would that be? If you're loving and good and lend to enemies, he says, it will benefit you. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. All right, what do we do with this? How are we to understand this? Well, there are three things that I'd like to suggest that can help us begin to get a grip on this passage. And probably it will be no more than a beginning, but hopefully. First thing is we have to dispel the notion that this is a universal ethic for all society. Number one, this is not an ethic for civil government. There have been Christians throughout history who have tried to stretch this into an ethical system for all society, but you can't do that. Because scripture doesn't contradict scripture, and Romans 13, for example, Paul reiterates the institution of something called civil government. It's existed at least since the time of Noah, where God instituted civil government for the benefit of mankind so that history can continue and God's purposes can be worked out. It goes back all the way to the time of Noah, at least, and is in force for all generations. And in the common grace institution of civil government, Government is there to promote justice. Now, they can also promote mercy, but they better not fail to provide justice. And so the civil authority, as ordained by God, has coercive power. He does not bear the sword in vain. The civil authority will not turn the other cheek. And if you're thinking of nations, nations are going to have standing armies and secure borders or they will not long survive as nations. So when soldiers asked John the Baptist what they should do, he didn't tell them, stop being soldiers. And when the Roman centurion approached Jesus, Jesus commended his faith. He didn't criticize him for being a Roman official. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render to God the things that are God. If Caesar demands worship, of course we can't do that. But if Caesar demands taxes, yeah, you got to do it. As Christians, we live in two kingdoms. We live in the kingdom of God, and we also live in a civil kingdom. For us here, it's the United States. It has laws, we follow them. It has rulers, we obey them. Now, there's so much more that can be said, 
but what I've told you right now is scripture and it is truth. This ethic of loving the enemy is not an ethic for civil government, but it is a personal ethic for persecuted disciples. Disciples are citizens of the kingdom of God. And as such, we represent God to the world. You and I are God's ambassadors. They're going to know what God is like by seeing how we live. I mean, the, the, the world might not read its Bible, but it will read its Christians or those who profess to be Christians. Now, the, now the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom and it's an invisible kingdom. And the salvation that we have from being in that kingdom is internal and invisible, but it can be displayed. And the church is the manifestation of this spiritual, invisible kingdom in the world. So this is the place, my brothers and sisters in the church, where mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption are demonstrated and modeled. The way that we treat one another is observed by others. And so we have a personal ethic of love, but even outside where there are enemies, that ethic extends toward enemies. Now I said the context for our passage presumes persecution. And, you know, in this nation, for the most part, when I grew up, that was far from the sight of Christians because the general culture supported Christianity. But have you noticed it's becoming less and less the case? Persecution. Opposition on account of our identification with the Son of Man. There are times when our witness for Jesus will result in opposition, in persecution, and Jesus' words at the end of this section, I think are a key to understanding the passage. That's where Jesus says that God is kind and merciful to the evil and the ungrateful. As disciples, we are to show the world how God is kind and merciful even to enemies. So, as a disciple of Jesus, if I'm being persecuted on account of the Son of Man, I must bear that persecution. As Jesus instructs me, I must love the one who persecutes me. I should pray for him and bless him and do good to him. And if he insults me for standing with Christ by slapping my cheek, I must bear it and even present to him my other cheek. But if it's the middle of the night and I'm being assaulted in my home by an intruder, that's different. I have the right and the responsibility to defend myself and my family. The gospel is not at stake in such circumstances, but my family's safety is. So let's disabuse ourselves of the notion that this means extensive non-resistance and pacifism I have respect for those who understand and interpret it that way, but it doesn't preclude self-defense, 
We're talking about persecution on account of Christ. And to help us get a grip on this a little bit more, I'd like to introduce a third notion. I'll call it frame of reference. Frame of reference. Let me explain what I mean. I'm looking at a photo. And in the photo is a man whose face is contorted and he is violently shoving a child who looks frightened and confused. And from what I see, I can only conclude that this man is a brute harming a helpless child. But then I see another photo of the same scene, but this time with a larger frame. And in this second picture, the man is shoving the child out of the way of an oncoming car. My previous interpretation is completely reversed. Now, the man, instead of being a brute, is a hero. What changed? My frame of reference. Now it's more accurate. Before it was limited. My first impression was completely mistaken. Now at the end of this passage, Jesus says that the Most High is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now stay with me here. Here's a question that's not raised directly in the text, but it hovers in the background. Have you ever been ungrateful or evil? Have you ever hated or cursed or abused or insulted or taken from others? In other words, have you ever been the enemy in the picture? Let's adjust our frame of reference to include you and me and our entire history. Not just the good, but the bad and even the ugly. Have you ever been an enemy to another? I have. Hating, cursing, abusive words and actions. I could tell you some of the things I've done, but it wouldn't benefit you. There are things that I have said and done that I deeply regret. When I read this passage as a disciple, I'm the victim. And Jesus is telling me to love and do good and bless and pray. And I say, it's hard and I don't feel like it. But what if I'm the enemy? Romans 5 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Passage tells us we were sinners, we were enemies, so that for our entire existence, at least, you want to include it all, in relation to God, we're not innocent bystanders. How did we go from being enemies to being sons and daughters of the Most High? 
Well, it's rooted in the mercy and love and kindness of God the Father who loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son who went to the cross and died for our sins. So let's further expand our frame of reference to include not only our enemies but ourselves and now a merciful, kind, and gracious Heavenly Father. In the deeper background of the gospel narrative, God is just and God's justice is a given. Not talking now about the mercy of God, not talking now about the love of God, that's true, but I'm talking about the justice of God. It is presumed. It's there in the background. No one will get away with anything ultimately. There will be a final reckoning. There is a coming day of judgment. There will be for some, for many, even in this gospel it's mentioned, weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be outer darkness. There is everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels and for all who cast in their lot with evil. None of that, however, is inconsistent with a God who reveals himself as merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Jesus came into this world. He became incarnate not to meet with his friends, but to die for his enemies. That's you and me. It was for you and me, for your sins and mine, that he was crucified. Think about that. Let's expand our frame of reference to include ourselves in the picture because when we do that, we see we're not only victims, but victimizers. Maybe to different degrees, but still, we're all in the same fallen human boat. Have I hated and cursed and abused? I was bullied as a child. It was terrible. I could tell you about it. You'd feel bad for me. But then as I reflected, ooh, there were times that I bullied that little boy in the neighborhood. I thought it was so funny. I don't think so now. Well, that was me. It's painful. This is painful self-reflection. Don't do it apart from the cross of Christ's forgiveness or you'll just land yourself in despair. No, thank Jesus for his atoning, forgiving blood. This is one of the reasons why we regularly take the Lord's Supper so we can reflect on Christ's blood shed for our forgiveness, his body broken for us. When we widen the frame to include our Heavenly Father, we get a glimpse of the one who is kind and merciful to the ungrateful and the evil. And if you reflect enough on this, then maybe what Jesus is asking is not so great after all. Maybe when you and I consider how we've been forgiven, 
carrying on a tradition of loving the enemy that Jesus began, maybe that's not such a stretch after all. Paul understood this. He said, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. I have those words written on the bulletin board in front of my desk because I've had to have recourse to them at times. Paul knew himself to be the chief of sinners and he never stopped being amazed at the grace of the God who forgave him. Uh, Peter was another one who understood this. He said, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Uh, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you were called. To this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter remembered that he had denied Christ three times. Is God merciful? Yeah, he knew it. Mercy is an aspect of love. God's mercy is amazing. The problem for us is, with all things that are good, it's just so easy to take it for granted. Through the ages, Jesus' disciples have found grace to follow him and have imitated him in suffering for his sake. In doing so, they've carried the gospel forward. God's mercy sustained them. May it do the same for us. Yes, there are martyrs, witnesses for Jesus. But my friends, and I'm speaking to my brothers and sisters, disciples of Jesus, remember this. You are already in the kingdom of God. You can't get kicked out. You're in. You are already forgiven. You have the gift of eternal life, and it will not be taken from you. You have decided to follow Jesus. Your future is secure. And even if the world all around us looks like it's coming apart at the seams, Remember this, the eternal God has everything under control and he knows how to deliver those who trust in him. Jesus here gives us instructions on what it looks like to follow him. And at times, yeah, it looks hard. But it will be easier for us if we remember what he's already done for us in order to make us enemies his friends. The future for the disciple is bright. It's even something to rejoice in in the midst of suffering. Jesus says, in that day rejoice and leap for joy, for great is your reward. Remember this, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. He's merciful and gracious. He's kind and compassionate. So let us follow him. Our Heavenly Father, some of the hard sayings of Jesus are hard for us to swallow, 
but we do want to follow him. So, give us grace, O Lord, to remember all that you have done for us. Lord, help us to always have a large enough frame of reference to see that we always need grace, that apart from you there is no hope, but that our frame of reference wonderfully includes you, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of love, whose love has been expressed toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.